Hello, everybody, and you're very welcome to take two of our webinar. And we have our fingers and toes crossed now that everything goes smoothly today. Um, really welcome, and thank you for joining this talk on Would You Trust a Robot More Than Your Doctor? While I'm presenting, I'm going to switch my camera off. And just to let you know that this has been recorded uh, for anyone who, who wants to catch up on it later. So just to begin, first of all, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Jane Walsh, and I'm based in the School of Psychology here in NUI Galway. And I direct a research group called the Mobile Technology and Health Research Group. I'm a health psychologist by background and really interested in how modern techno technological innovations can be harnessed to improve our health and well-being. And I work across a wide range of projects, Horizon 2020, SFI, um, to, to explore this idea. Just to give you a little overview or background for some of the projects I work in, I do a lot of work in the use of mobile technology for patients. For example, your standard wearables like Fitbits and so on, and using them to try to improve physical activity or improve um, general health behaviors. I've also worked on projects that are EU funded on the use of technology that's personalized to improve health and well-being. More recently, like everybody else, we pivoted our time and energy during the pandemic to look at ways that we could deploy technology to improve and mitigate the risks associated with the pandemic. So we conducted research on digital contact tracing. Of course, there were a lot of concerns about privacy in that project. Other projects then that I'm currently working on are the use of virtual reality to, to reduce sedentary behavior in older adults, also to reduce obesity stigma, and then some work on social robots in healthcare. And of course, robots are like the new frontier and a source of great fascination to many of us. So we're all very aware that there's a digital health revolution going on around us as we speak. Four billion people use the internet. We hear words like telemedicine, artificial intelligence, electronic health records, all of these new developments that are rapid developments, they are completely reshaping interactions with health professionals. If we had any doubt about it before, there's no doubt that the pandemic really accelerated our use of technology in the area of health and well-being. We hear this term digital health all the time, and a lot of us don't really know what exactly it means. There's lots of subterms that we use within this domain. For example, mHealth, gamification, the use of apps, sensors, wearables, telehealth, and so on. All of these hold their own potential in different ways for improving health and well-being. It's not just industry that's driving these new developments. The World Health Organization has developed a new digital health strategy where they've said that the vision of global strategy is to improve health for everyone and everywhere, but by taking a person-centric approach. And this is really important, that the person is at the center of all of these new developments. The European Commission also has a digital strategy. And you can see from this visual that they have a user-centric um, center at their strategy. In other words, that the people are involved in the design and deployment of these new developments in technology. And of course, Digital Health Europe have also referred to the importance of personalized and person-centric care. 
So this is all brilliant on paper, but what's happening in reality? Well, as we know, industry is driving um, these new developments. And so there's a couple of trends we need to keep our eyes on because what happens in industry usually eventually has a knock-on effect in our ordinary day-to-day -day life. So what are these trends? Well, one new trend, especially since the pandemic and lockdown, is the rise of on-demand healthcare. Any of you who are here today will know that the hospitals are bursting at the seams. Everyone who delayed and presented late as a result of lockdown, and of course, existing COVID patients in the hospital care system, have provided what is an unsustainable model of healthcare. So we, you may be aware that, for example, VHI, that's the Irish insurance provider, now provides online GP care to those that have health insurance with them. And patients are voting with their feet and looking for alternative ways to access healthcare through these online platforms. Another big trend we hear it a lot is the use of big data. And the idea here is that we collect a lot of data from the cloud, from devices, from sensors and so on, that will allow us predict patterns of behavior. And this can be used to lower the rate of medication errors, for example, because software algorithms can flag inconsistencies. Now, while we're all afraid of being tracked and so on, the idea in a good way is that it would facilitate identifying problem attenders and other areas and set some nice preventative tasks in, in plan to reduce the burden on the healthcare system. Another trend is the use of virtual reality. Now we all know this has been around for a long time and there's new toys being developed all the time, more efficient ways of using it. How would this be any good in a healthcare setting? Well, research has shown, in fact, that instead of drugs, using these kind of distracting techniques uh, can be very effective in pain management. And anyone who's ever suffered from chronic pain will know that it's a dreadful burden to live with and can place huge demands on the healthcare system. So anything that helps or empowers patients to manage this elsewhere, whether it's technological or not, and also reduce drug use is a very positive development. Another trend at this stage we're very familiar with is the growth of wearable devices. If you were in a room with me now, I'd say hands up who wears a Fitbit or tracks their um, activity or logs, anything they do with these wearables. And I, I'm pretty sure that most of you have used them at some point or other. So what is the thing with the wearables? Well, we love being able to see how we're doing. We love tracking our respiration, our step count is a big one. What's our heart rate? Are we fit? Um, you know, what's our body temperature? What does that mean? Can we link this to psychological uh, factors? Does it tell us when we're stressed? You know, the, the sort of games that you can play, the things you can track, you know, there's a very wide range of them. So possibly this could be used uh, by insurance agencies. Some of us mightn't like that idea at all. But what if a wearing a wearable that shows that we're physically active could reduce our insurance premium? Maybe that's a good thing. As a health psychologist, the use of wearables is a great development in allowing us to develop behavior change interventions. What do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is that we can track how people are doing and we can offer advice, structured, tailored advice with goal setting and feedback that allows people to recognize areas that they can make some positive changes 
and follow through and see if they can achieve those goals using wearables. And of course, if this is used in this positive way, the knock-on potential effect on the healthcare system is huge. Another trend that kind of scares people a little bit is the use of artificial intelligence and this idea of precision healthcare. So when we think of artificial intelligence, we think the machines are coming to get us, the robots are coming to get us, and there's a certain element of trepidation. Artificial intelligence is the collection of data from the cloud and from a variety of sources that allows us to develop algorithms or intelligent interactions between chatbots, virtual health assistants, robots, and members of the public, our patients. Through a constant refinement of this data with really important educated human input, we can develop highly personalized healthcare interventions. And this is something that's really useful to all of us. Not only would it save a lot of money to the healthcare providers, but you as a patient could feel I'm getting something that's based on my data, that's directly targeted at my needs and is not a generic one size fits all. But the question is, how would you feel about a robot being the one to deliver that to you? So our final trend in healthcare we're mentioning today in technology and healthcare are the social robots. As you can see, this friendly looking guy here with those lovely big eyes, he's very cute. Nothing scary about him, or is there? Why would we use a robot? Now, we've all been locked down for a long time and we were starved of human contact. The idea now that we won't get to see our doctor, but a robot will wheel in to deal with us might be just one step too far for many of us. Why would we use them? Well, demand for healthcare services is at an all time high. It's actually unsustainable, and this is globally. Robots actually can help solve some of these staff shortage issues. Whether we like it or not, the medical robotic market is projected to grow by 20% plus annually to tens of millions of dollars by 2026. So it's a growing market, the developments are huge, the robots are coming. And just one contextual thing for all of these healthcare developments uh, in technology is the development and rollout of 5G. We'll all have heard about this. Um, we'll hear the technologists are really excited by 5G. It's 100 times faster than existing cellular capacity. Predicted savings of 650 billion by 2025. What's so cool about 5G? Well, it will allow us through the speed of this technology to create virtual environments for robotic surgeries. Hold it right there, robot doing surgery. Well, research shows that actually robotic uh, surgery can be more precise than that and reduce human errors. Frightening thought, but huge, enormous potential, and they're already being actively used. One of the advantages of the robotic surgeries and the use of AOR um, allows surgery to be conducted remotely. So think about the cost and now think about the planet with the traveling specialists um, to deliver really important surgery elsewhere. What if it can be done remotely? 
what if it, it can be done through these new technologies? Would you be confident in this? Would you be desperate enough to accept this? Well, these are very real questions for all of us. The idea of being a first responder then arriving to the scene of an accident or an injury where you can pop on these augmented reality glasses, connect directly with the remote specialist and administer timely life-saving treatment to somebody in dire need. These are potentially fantastic developments to save lives and possibly reduce burden of multiple teams um, dealing with something and not having the best specialist to hand. And then there's the idea of your doctor being able to get data about you from all kinds of sources right to his or her laptop, phone, and, and be able to give very useful uh, diagnosis and treatment plans to you. So as I mentioned already, industry is blazing a trail here. Your head would spin with the new almost daily developments of these fantastic technologies. But there is a caveat here. We know that there's a long history of technologists developing things in their silos, in their labs, without ever seeing or meeting a patient, barely speaking to a doctor, and certainly not consulting a health psychologist. And this is something that has to change. Why does it have to change? Because the people will revolt. We've really had enough now of being terrorized by technology. We see so much negative stuff on the press. I mean, it's Facebook again, Meta, what is that? We're being watched. We have privacy concerns. The machines are learning about us and we're not happy about that. A lot of us, aside from anything, do not like the idea that the machines might know us better than we know ourselves. If we didn't know before, we certainly know it now, that as we move, we leave a digital footprint. We are flooded with cookies and ads that think they know us. Sometimes they're telling us things about ourselves we're not happy with. We're leaving a digital footprint. We are relentlessly being advertised to, marketed and sold to. And many of us, you know, willingly fall for it. But this idea of our data being shared, you know, so much negative press. We have ticked boxes agreeing to things. We're not really sure what we've done. And now we're at a stage in our lives where we cannot disconnect from technology. It's really embedded in our everyday life and it's not going anywhere. So we have this enormous fear that we're being taken over. Many of us are really concerned about not having control over these developments and that we might be subjected to new technological instruments and interventions without our consent. And it's like healthcare with our chat with the doctor is the last bastion of the person-to-person -person care of ourselves and our well-being. Can it really be technologized? Well, the good news is that health psychologists have been working in this area now for several years and have a really important contribution to make to help allay fears and help to develop ones that are person-centric and that are useful and take people's opinions and concerns into account. And there's five key areas that we contribute to. One is the whole idea of acceptability. Some technologies are simply not acceptable to us. And this is something we need to know during the development phase. And, and some of them need to be put aside and, and uh, left. Others are engagement. So there might be an app we might like the look of, 
but after a couple of days, we decide no more. So what are the features that will retain our interest? The design, simplicity is often key. And it's only through understanding people's cognitive limitations and preferences that we can design something that will be engaging and appealing. Does it work? We need to really understand about human psychology and a particular behavior change if we want to have any hope of develop, developing technologies that will actually make a difference. If we were in any doubt before, we've realized through COVID that never has behavior and our use of technology be more important than now. And as I mentioned, the pandemic has accelerated our use and knowledge of technology and its capabilities. And while we're all a bit sick of it, I'd love to be in a room chatting with all of you now, here we are online, and this wouldn't be possible without some of these new technologies. So if we think that it's not a good time to get sick or go into hospital, and maybe technology can help us, well, maybe this is a positive thing. But if we really want to change people's behavior through technology, we need to understand it. And I love this quote by Desmond Tutu. There comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. Some of us need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And this is where psychology excels. So going back to the idea of the person at the center, the World Health Organization was taking no chances and made it very clear that stakeholder involvement is critical to embedding technology safely and successfully into our healthcare lives. I love this quote. If you miss the first buttonhole, you will not succeed in buttoning up your coat. Well, actually, you will button up your coat, but you look very, very silly. But, you know, when you've got a lot of people from dis different disciplines around a table, it's very difficult sometimes to speak the same language. So here's Emer Marcy, known to many of you, who did just that for her PhD dissertation and very skillfully, might I add, to try then to get a coherent understanding of a problem and how to find solutions is something that requires a skilled exercise. And this, again, is something we've learned to refine through our engagement with PPI and some of the skills that we have in health psychology research. Through EMERS and related research project, we looked at if we were to use an app for medication adherence, something as simple as that, what would be the patient's issues? Four key things emerged from our research in this area. And this is quite a few years ago. So we've learned a lot since then. But trust is huge. Who's giving us this app? Who's shown us how to use it? Who's reading it? Can we trust them? Is it personalized to us? Where's our motivation from? And then is this going to replace communication with our doctor? Because if it is, we're not interested. And the European Commission said that also in the development of these apps, we need to really understand behavior change. If we're going to use technology, we need to include behavior change. And the experts in behavior change are health psychologists. One thing I'm going to let you in on a little secret. We're skilled, but we don't have all the answers. Behavior change is complicated. If you try to change too many things in a person's life all at once, they'll probably disengage. So what you're always looking to do is prioritize, personalize, and start with simple goal setting steps. 
Take, for example, the 350,000 apps on the market already. Do they work? Well, you can see my answer underneath, no. Why not? Simply because they did not take the person or the evidence, scientific evidence on health behavior change into account. So they look fancy, we like them, we try them, we realize, oh my goodness, they're not working. And that's because there is a whole science of behavior change. And we have a lot of expertise in the School of Psychology. And Professor Molly Byrne heads up a brilliant unit, the Health Behavior Change Unit, that looks at the implementation of the most effective ways to change our behavior. And this is a really important area of research. We follow a scientific model, and this is just briefly the science bit, that takes into account not just the individual and their preferences, but also the context within which they live. And it's really important to understand that if you're going to change behavior. Did you know that the things that influence our behavior are how motivated we are, whether or not we have a real opportunity, and whether or not we believe that we can do it? So that idea of self-efficacy, and how do we foster that in people? Well, partnership is the answer. So I say we're skilled as health psychologists, but we work in partnership with so many different sectors and the patient or person at the center of our designs. And we're always clear on what we're doing, why we're doing it and why it's important. So a little example of the importance of personalization was from a study that we conducted a couple of years ago. And this is published this year, if you want to read it. It's called a Moving On program, where we used wearable technologies with uh, cancer survivors who were uh, living with obesity to try to improve their health and well-being and reduce their BMI, which, as we know, is a big indicator for our risk for secondary cancers. So we use some of these behavior change techniques, goal setting, graded tasks, uh, self-monitoring and feedback. And we set them goals using the Fitbit. First of all, we didn't set unrealistic goals. We said, look, how much are you walking already? And let's try to build that by 10% a week. So people really valued and appreciated the fact that we didn't go in with a really tough, unachievable goal. And why is that so important? Well, as I mentioned, the idea of capability. If you think I can't do it, if it's too hard, you may disengage from the outset. So what you want are achievable goals. You get people working up towards higher goals slowly and in achievable and a timely way. And this was a really important feature of this intervention. The results were really successful. So these are people that had cancer, that had survived it and had a lot on their plate. But they significantly increased their physical activity at many of the key time points. And the slide I'm missing there is they actually um, improved or reduced their BMI, which we didn't expect. So it was really effective from a clinical perspective. But we didn't just take the clinical results. We also went back. It's like our stakeholder engagement again. Went back to the patients and said, what did you think of all of that? And they said, we really liked it. They said, we liked the communication. We didn't mind the technology, but we loved the fact that there was a person tuning in and having a chat with us to see how we were getting on using it. So that was really important. We found it useful to track our steps. We never realized how much or little we were doing. And we loved the fact that the targets were for us exclusively. So that's a lovely uh, bit of feedback. 
Now, we talked about how industry hasn't been so good thus far in developing apps with stakeholder engagement, but that is changing. And I just want to mention one um, industrial partner of ours in, in Galway, uh, Michelle Tierney, who is um, the co-founder of Symphysis Medical. And they are developing a really important um, device for draining fluid from the lungs in cancer patients at home. And the idea is to keep people at home so that they don't have to come into hospital. These are very sick patients. But for this to work, they need some kind of interface that will advise them on when to use the device or advise their um, carer. And so we helped them with some stakeholder research, talking to patients and doctors and caregivers about what would work and what was the most appropriate. And they developed a lovely device and they got a lot of funding from Enterprise Ireland recently to bring this to market. So they're doing trials at the moment in the US and elsewhere. So what they're going to develop should be very well received by their target market ultimately, um, and also psychologically sound in terms of its efficacy. But listen, I know you all came here to hear about the robots. So what about the robots? Why would we use them? Well, as I mentioned already, the health services are bursting. They cannot manage their workload. If a robot could give them a hand, well, surely this would be a good thing. And this global market is growing. How could we use the robots? Well, a sort of low tech way we could use them is maybe a little bit more acceptable is the idea that robots do some of those awful jobs around the hospital um, that none of the rest of us would like to do. So this is Moxie. Moxie has been developed by an American company. And Moxie is a helper droid that does errands around the hospital. So the nurses can say, Moxie, go and drag that bag of rubbish down to, you know, to the bins. Or Moxie, please go and find me in the storeroom some things I need for this patient. Because evidence suggests that 28% of nurses' time is wasted on low-skill tasks, trekking up and down corridors, getting stuff. There's Moxie gone to the storeroom. That's one less job for a nurse. And what about that last point? Robots can't get COVID-19. Well, at least as far as we know. So perhaps there's a couple of high-risk interaction tasks uh, from a COVID perspective that a robot could do that reduces the risk to the healthcare workers. And that surely has to be a good thing. Now, in Goa, I have the great fortune to collaborate with um, colleagues from several disciplines doing some research using robots at the moment. And uh, in Galway, for a sort of a simple task, we use Dave, the robot. This study is led by Professor Derek O'Keefe, who's consultant endocrinologist, but also an engineer by background, so multiply skilled in understanding technology. So we did a study where we placed Dave, the robot, in the foyer of the hospital and in the diabetes daycare centre. Dave is a military-grade robot that can sense when someone enters the foyer and then speaks to them by giving a digital nudge, reminding them to wash their hands. And if a person says yes or no, Dave can um, read that response and respond accordingly. So it's a very high level interaction. We've just had a study accepted for publication that shows that hand hygiene behavior increased significantly by 20 to 30% by using Dave versus just a sort of standard observational study in the foyer. 
this is great and a simple little intervention. Okay, that's one thing, sending them down to the storeroom and then maybe asking people to wash their hands. But what about the patients? So some lovely research being done and they're blazing a trail in Auckland. And here's one example um, by Gas Tiger and colleagues and Liz Broadbent in, um, in the University of Auckland who've been doing work for years with robots. And a recent study by them looked at a simple daily care assistive robot in the homes of older adults simply to remind them of some daily activities and also to play some games with them that would help um, reduce cognitive impairment and increase cognitive stimulation. What did people think about Bomi the robot? Well, they actually liked him. They saw him as a companion, but thought, well, actually, we prefer if he was a bit more personalized to our needs. And this goes back to the importance of co-design, which is one of the conclusions of this study. So what about this behavior change? Can robots really change behavior? Well, there's a lot of research that shows that there's great potential. And this was a study done in, by Robinson et al in, I think, 2020, where they used a robot to do a motivational intervention uh, to reduce high calorie snacking in patients. And what they found is quite astonishing. They found an average weight reduction of four and a half kgs in the first two weeks. I mean, I don't know any way that that would work in any normal circumstances. That's really impressive. They also found, which I think is a lovely finding, increases in perceived confidence to control snack intake. So it goes back to that idea of capability. The robot made people feel more able to engage in this behavior. And that's a wow finding, in my opinion. And the research suggested they were as effective as a human clinician. So we could all be out of a job. We've done a study in Galway and actually we're going to be submitting the results for publication this month, looking at whether or not a robot could be used for diabetes education. Now this was featured this week on Future Island, anyone who was watching it. And that's Derek O'Keefe with Luke O'Neill, who's very well known to us all now, and Dave the Robot. It was a fabulous collaboration, medicine, psychology, education, engineering. No one person has all the answers. And we also had uh, patients involved in the development of this intervention. So this was just a feasibility study. And what we did was we tested knowledge before and after using Dave to deploy an interactive quiz. What did we find? Patients loved Dave. He's cute. He actually, even though we'd only 13 participants in this feasibility study, there was a significant increase in knowledge. Now we didn't have a control group. So just before and after, which I know isn't a perfect design, but this at least was very positive. And what was even more positive was those that had the lowest knowledge actually thought Dave would be most helpful to them. So that's a really good target group uh, in a clinic that might save the doctors and nurses time with basic educational modules for patients in a waiting room. So that's a lot to take in today. And let's just think about what's gonna happen in the future with technology and health. Well, the most important thing we've seen is the idea of taking your stakeholder perspectives into account, putting the person at the center, and also bringing the experts from several disciplines together, working together towards a single goal, which is improving global health and wellbeing through the use of innovative technology. So we need stakeholder data, but we also need this combined with the big data 
the stuff in the cloud. We need to combine it with sophisticated trial design. And I'm not talking about RCTs, I'm talking about just-in-time adaptive interventions and other very sophisticated designs that are highly personalized. And that these can be delivered through a personalized, appealing user interface. There's a lot in that sentence, isn't there? It's not an easy um, goal, but it is a, a worthy one. It's really important we consider adherence to regulations on safety and privacy because people have said this is critical. And now we know with GDPR and everything, it's something we cannot ignore. And to do this successfully, we need perfect synergy between multiple disciplines. The most important thing for us all to accept, whether you're a technologist, a psychologist, a doctor, not one of us can do this alone. So we really need to work cooperatively together. As I mentioned, industry is blazing a trail, so we need to work with industry. And the European Union has been fantastic in funding projects that engages academic partners and researchers with healthcare professionals and industry. And we need to get comfortable dealing with industry and the pace they work at, and also advising and informing the development of their solutions so that they're patient-friendly and effective. And let's reflect on a moment for a moment. Some of the opportunities I've painted are in the utopian element. So the idea of the beneficial use for our health is a marvelous dream. But what we really have to be careful of is down to the left, the dystopian or harmful influences. So we need to always have our eye on a person's perspective, ethics, the future, and what is our definition of health and well-being. So we mitigate any potential risks or any um, perspectives that are not, uh, that are simply commercial and not focused on well-being. And so we're left with this question. Robots, are they good or evil? Well, you decide. And thank you all very much for your attention. So I'll put the camera back on now and um, you have a chance to ask any questions by popping them in the chat. I should have said that at the beginning, the Q&A. So if anyone has a question, please fire ahead. Very happy to answer. Oh, I probably couldn't see them there. I see one there now. Stick the glasses on for this. Jerry, thanks, Jerry. Great talk, Jamie. Any thoughts on the potential harms of self-monitoring technology for health for some groups? For example, the evidence that frequent self-weighing is associated with harmful patterns of eating. Very good question. And this goes to the dystopian concerns we might have about where it becomes um, really damaging to people. So we are aware that uh, excessive self-monitoring can actually increase stress and anxiety. So this is where perhaps maybe some guidelines are drawn out in the idea of if you're going to suggest that someone engage with technology for self-monitoring, that you provide perhaps parameters um, for healthy or effective use, and perhaps initially have some oversight on how they're engaging. And if it's a case that it's damaging, 
suggest that this is no longer part of their, their treatment plan or use of it and try to come up with healthy alternatives. So this is, I suppose, in the early stages of using technologies and intervention, part of your assessment of whether or not it's doing any harm um, in the way that people are engaging with it. And that's really important. Thank you, Jerry. Any other questions from anyone? I see one has appeared somewhere else. Oh yeah, yep, sure if people want to raise their hands. Um, Courtney will enable that function so that some people might like to do that. I don't know if I'll be able to see them, but oh, Michael, thank you. Excellent talk. Is there a relationship between age and acceptance of the robot? Thanks very much, Michael. Uh, so interestingly, the Gaff Tiger study was with older adults and they really like the robot. They saw it as a companion. And there's great research to show as well in NUI Galway that the idea of reducing loneliness with the right type of robot in older adults is a really positive outcome. So even if they're not sort of delivering an intervention, then in fact, they may reduce loneliness. And we know that loneliness is very damaging for our psychological and physical health. So that's a really good thing. So I think, yes, using them with the older adults is brilliant. In our little pilot study, we found, in fact, that the people that benefited the most from the, um, the, the knowledge intervention were the younger people. Uh, and that could be just maybe that in the in that moment they were more tech savvy or more comfortable. I'm not sure. But in a nutshell, we did not see age differentials, actually, that if it's a right kind of looking robot, it's got a nice tone, look and interaction that people will generally um, react well to it, no matter what their age. I don't know. Can I see hands? Hands raised or not, but um, you're welcome. <laughs> Angela, do you have your hand raised or was I dreaming? Uh, no, sorry, Jane, I was <laughs> just checking there. <laughs> thanks. No problem, thanks. Um, any other questions, anybody? One thing I would say, I suppose, is it's a bit like the river flowing downstream. Us researchers, if we can get ahead of the flow early, you know, grab the bull by the horns, we can actually, you know, um, help the very um, early formative stages of this type of research. Have you looked at robots to combat ICU delirium? No, I don't know anything about that literature, um, Michael. I'm wondering, are you doing work in that area? But I mean, I think for a lot of us, it's learning what technology is out there, first of all, and then thinking creatively about how we can deploy this successfully to problems that we're solving. So Derek O'Keefe, who I mentioned earlier, talks about unmet clinical needs. So if you're working in healthcare and you, for example, uh, come across something like delirium, you're thinking, well, what do we traditionally use to solve that? And is there any technological um, element that we could use um, that would improve or help us deliver an alternative intervention. So that's your starting point. What's your need? What problem are you trying to solve? And then think, well, maybe it's not a robot, 
but maybe actually some other type of, of visual device. It could be augmented reality. Well, that probably that probably add to their problems actually, but you know, think laterally, what's available? What's the problem? Can I match them and come up with a creative solution? Anyone got any other questions? So if not, um, I just want to say a huge thank you to you all for, for joining and for your attention today. I really appreciate it and pleasure to talk about something, I suppose, that's just a little different. If any of you do have questions later or would like to follow up, please drop me an email um, and you can see it on the bottom of the screen there. And also I'm on Twitter. You can always follow some of the research we're doing there if you're interested. Um, and with that, I think I will draw the meeting to a close and um, just say a huge thank you. Oh, sorry, another question. Apologies, Thomas. Uh, does it not make more sense to automate cognitive labor than physical? Surely healthcare worker with a doctor app is more cost effective than a surgeon with a robot arm. I don't know is the short answer to that. Um, and I think this is where in the trialing of technologies, part of the assessment is economic assessment. And then looking at both uh, outcomes in terms of health and well-being, but also um, clinical outcomes and that they can be matched to cost e effectiveness. So I think it's an important part of the research the pilot trials, Tom, but um, I don't know for each specific case. Uh, I think it's an important question to raise, though. And Michael has another question. Da Vinci surgical robot has, after a difficult start, been a game changer. Yes, absolutely, it has. And I have colleagues in Italy that are looking uh, for um, bone surgery, they've developed some really amazing tools. So it's just going to increase. Um, it's going to increase precision surgery. It should always be overseen, of course, by an expert surgeon, but it does allow, um, I suppose, an, another tool um, in the healthcare system um, for, you know, to, to, I suppose, increase efficiency and accuracy of interventions. Yeah, absolutely. Not to be afraid of, but we want to make sure they're very well tested and that we're not just guinea pigs some of these mad ideas that industry has. Okay, so thank you all very much again. And as I said, drop me an email or a line if you like. I'm always happy to talk. And uh, that concludes this and wishing you all a lovely day. Thank you. <laughs>